There is no watertight excuse for this book. It strolls impertinently over ground that has been carefully mapped by the qualified authorities and elegantly appreciated by many devoted amateurs. Its purview is ludicrously broad, nothing less than an exhibition of the Englishman in his more characteristic manifestations through the ages. It is also based on an idea that might have seemed stale even three generations ago, when, in the last days of a vast and tottering empire, the national character was, rather self-consciously, gathering its forces, like the blind Samson, for its final self-destroying effort. It is, wriggle out of it as we would, a hopelessly, damnably patriotic book. However, it is our opinion that the evils of nationalism, cultural hostility, race hatred, and fear of social change are best countered by an open regard for the values of one's own society and a cheerful celebration of its virtues, and on this basis an honest recognition of its failures and weaknesses. Now that the British imperial bubble has been well and truly burst, it is perhaps time to drop the adolescent posture of esteeming anyone except those who have made us and given us whatever freedoms we have. To pretend to appreciate another culture without appreciating one's own implies a psychological dislocation that is even more unhealthy than the doctrine of my country right or wrong. Pride may be a deadly sin, but unless the whole country should enjoy a sudden and totally unprecedented access of compassion, it will be found that pride, from time to time, can be made to serve a useful function, so that a proud people, conscious perhaps of some occasionally honourable showing in its long history, becomes simply ashamed to put up with poverty, squalor and injustice, with bigotry, cowardice and greed. And patriotism is certainly not dead. It is just that it now generally finds its expression on the sports pages, where we may still watch England going down with her colours nailed to the mast. I did my best, but that's cricket, as Frank Bruno said after his attempt at the world heavyweight title. The essential Englishman is not the eternal Englishman. In every century he will be found throwing his weight around in quite a different style. The common thread differs from the Russian soul and the German sense of destiny and the French esprit. It is instead, perhaps, the English character, not as a fixed attitude, but as a sense of individualism. Someone once said that only in England would John Donne's proposition that no man is an island be counted a paradox. Like all things, however, the Englishman is impermanent. But in the mess that dying cultures and empires leave behind, potent seeds are sometimes sown. For example, we can just glimpse through the mists and forests of late 5th century England, after the legions had long gone, the last Roman Britons briefly holding back the tide of heathen barbarians in a hopeless struggle to maintain the vestiges of civilization. The chap in charge of those Britons used Roman cavalry tactics and probably thought of himself as essentially Roman. As King Arthur, however, he contributed to the essential Englishman some of his more honourable manifestations, and as a mystical personification of the land itself inspired an early national identity. Similarly, patriotism, Englishness, is less important than the principles and individuals it has called forth, not to mention the qualities to inspire other peoples and the blunders to warm them. It has been said that England is a country in the North Sea governed by Scotsmen, and many of our essential Englishmen are indeed Scots, Irish or Welsh. There is no way out of this. Indeed, a good many Englishmen nowadays can claim to be Caribbean, African or Pakistani, Racial purity is simply not English, 
So why is this book not called something like The Essential Brit? Because we don't want to subsume the essential individuality of the Scots, Irish and Welsh beneath the character of the dominant power. Women are deliberately excluded because to do them proper justice in a patriarchal society would require a deeper investigation than we have attempted. For the same sorts of reason, certain everyday features of the English experience have been neglected or ignored completely, particularly work and domestic life. Donald Horne in God is an Englishman divides the English identity into two. In the northern metaphor, Britain is pragmatic, empirical, calculating, puritan, bourgeois, enterprising, adventurous, scientific, serious, and believes in struggle. Its sinful excess is a ruthless avarice, rationalized in the belief that the prime impulse in all human beings is a rational, calculating, economic self-interest. In the southern metaphor, Britain is romantic, illogical, muddled, divinely lucky, Anglican, aristocratic, traditional, frivolous, and believes in order and tradition. Its sinful excess is a ruthless pride, rationalized in the belief that men are born to serve. The northern metaphor may be said to be British, and the southern metaphor English. Both are essential, and both are represented here. The Englishman is either a roundhead or a cavalier, but the southern metaphor is the one with the best tunes, and it is the one that dominates this book. The essential Englishman is a celebration and a distraction rather than a critique, and a tone of levity has been allowed to creep in even when treating serious matters. How, for example, could the Englishman's equivocal conception of his liberty be more succinctly put than in this soliloquy written by Marriott Edgar for Stanley Holloway? And it's through that their magna charter, as were signed by the barons of old, that in England today we can do what we like, so long as we do what we're told.'